Welcome back to Corporate Jet Investor 2021. And we have the final session and we've got five transaction experts who are going to take us through getting deals done at the moment. Absolutely delighted to invite Michelle Buffet from Credit Suisse, Frank Voltz from UBS, Stuart Miller from Clyde & Co, David Dixon from Jetcraft Asia and Alexander Tang from Global Jet Capital. Great to see so many of you, even if it's online. Um, Michelle, let's start with you. What are you seeing at the moment? We see activities. This is good. Uh, I think everybody knows that I think still aircraft are leaving Asia, going to the US, and mostly buyers there. But uh, we're happy to see that we still have transactions. Uh, we see in, in North Asia there is activity, uh, but also in markets um, that you know that we traditionally have not done much business. For example, Australia, uh, we have deals going on, which is uh, very great news. And also in South Asia, uh, there are markets where we see activities. People are buying aircraft and they need financing. So I would say I'm, I'm happy. Uh, it looks good. Uh, of course, it's not like the booming years, but uh, it's good. And we made progress. We see also large new aircrafts being delivered to markets like Japan, for example. And we see that as a positive sign. David? It's a case of a world of two halves, Asia. Uh, not doing so well in terms of inbound. Everything is ex going out, as we just heard. Um, and the US is going to new heights uh, and, and new, new levels of activity, which is unprecedented, which from a corporate business point of view is good. So that's a big tick. I'm very frustrated sitting here in our little hermit kingdom in Hong Kong and Asia, not able to move. Um, and there's no sign of it easing anytime soon. And that's, that's a worry. Uh, a year ago, we were at a standstill. Now, generally worldwide, we're moving back to levels of where we were in 2019, whether it's charter, whether it's fractional, whether it's ownership. Um, so on balance, it's good, but I'm just rather sad that Asia's uh, lifted itself up a bit, bit of an own goal. But you also working for a brokerage with lots of US colleagues, you're quite happy to take aircraft out of Asia and hand them over to them, aren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, as I said, as a global picture, um, this is CJI Asia, of course, Alistair. So uh, I'm, my focus, you know, my bread and butter is in this, this little shallow pool. Um, it's a bit like 1997 when the currency crash hit Asia. Um, airplanes left what they were in the region, just went to the States. The Americans hoovered them up. Same thing. Uh, there's a lot of airplanes leaving here for all sorts of reasons. I mean, some of them are not using them. Some of them are under financial pressure, some very notable ex examples of being in the media. Um, but the US is, is reaching new heights and previous, it was mentioned of Australia, domestic Australia is doing extremely well from a corporate point of view. Australia is a big country. You fly for um, four hours, you're still in Australia. You fly for four hours of LA, LA, you're still in New York. You fly for four minutes in Singapore, you're in two other countries. So the whole dynamic is different. Stuart, what are you seeing as a transaction lawyer in Hong Kong? Uh, well, uh, obviously, as a transaction lawyer, we follow what the commercial uh, parties are seeing. Um, no secret that although flight movements um, and border restrictions uh, are much more restricted here in Asia, 
uh, like Michelle was saying a minute ago, there is uh, quite a lot of activity going on. We're seeing the new entrants that everybody's been talking about. Uh, we're also seeing activity with existing owners, um, uh, as has been well discussed during the course of today's CJI Asia uh, aircraft leaving the region. Um, but obviously, some people in the region are holding on to their aircraft as well. Uh, and there's, uh, for example, refinancing work with those. Um, I echo the comments about what's happening in the South Pacific with uh, Australia and also New Zealand. Uh, more activity down there recently. Um, that's uh, that's what we're seeing. And Alexander, you're out and about. How hard is it being a transaction professional in Asia at the moment? Yeah, I think obviously uh, the problem we're facing is that uh, uh, Asia's border is still very, uh, very uh, close and contained, whereby not like US and Europe, the the the, move, the airplane movement are still are starting to uh, to be ongoing. However, uh, the trends that we're seeing in Asia is that uh, obviously, uh, as David and uh, David mentioned earlier, a lot of aircrafts are leaving, which is uh, 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 definitely something that we don't want to see. However, uh, conversely, a lot of aircraft uh, are coming in, a lot of new inquiries are coming into uh, the, to the region, especially in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, pro predominantly in uh, rising economies like Indonesia, Malaysia, and Vietnam. So we're also seeing a lot of activities in uh, Australia, New Zealand, which has been a traditionally strong market. And then um, um, in terms of difficulties, I think, um, you know, um, uh, as a financier, like I, I, I would say, like uh, uh, Michelle earlier mentioned, uh, we just we just deal with the requests that came in. However, we just try to be nimble and then uh, see how we can cope with the customers. Frank? We actually see quite, quite some frustration from existing owners of aircraft because they just cannot use their aircraft. And if they use it, they are under severe quarantine restrictions when they return. So in the same time, they are incurring the running costs of the aircraft. So some clients have taken a decision to, to sell the aircraft and try to take advantage of the rising pre-owned prices that they can, op can obtain. And, um, so, uh, so overall, you know, we see more more sellers than buyers. However, we also see that there there is quite some uh, demand from concept buyers uh, who are looking into uh, into doing deals. And um, there are quite a few new aircraft purchases that we are also seeing, uh, in, um, both from China and from Indonesia. And, um, so and, uh, there is some tendency to uh, to continue and, uh, with the with the business. However, it's not not nearly as strong as it used to be, and not at all comparable to other regions in the world. Frank, as a financier, what's your view on rising prices? Because in one way, it makes your loan to value better. But do you also worry that the next customer is going to want to to finance at a much higher value? What we are observing at the moment is what I would call a fear of missing out. There are some, uh, some first-time buyers out there who, are, uh, who may not pay a proper price given the value of a certain aircraft, and that makes it challenging from a financier's perspective. Uh, so if you see somebody um, buying, paying a, being willing to purchase 
uh, to pay 10, 20% above what you know, we perceive as the true value of the aircraft, it really gets, gets tricky to finance a higher loan to value based on such a purchase price. I think overall, we, uh, know, we have to uh, see, uh, is this a long-term trend where we are saying a shift in the aviation industry? Or is this more like a short-term situation after which the prices will return to, uh, let's say, a more normal level? And, um, and I think this is the, the million-dollar question to, uh, to, to be answered. So, David, can you answer the million-dollar question? Is this a short-term blip? I, I, the encouraging thing is the new, new entrance. That's broadening the market. Um, I think it's going to be a godsend to the OEMs. They're building a lot of heavy, long-range airplanes, which is ideal in Asia. You know, you've got the, just the 800 came up. You've got the new 400 from Gulfstream. You've got the 10X, 10X, the 8X, and every other X you can think of. And then you've got, um, Gulfstream, you've got the Bombardier 75, 65. A lot of heavy metal, long-range, trans-Pacific, long-range stuff. So I think that's going to throw out quite a lot of airplanes. Um, and I, I can see that the timing of this, the broadening of the market, uh, the increase in production, I think in a, in a sordid way, perhaps the events of the last uh, 12, 24 months are going to be good for the business longer term. Some of those new entrants may drop out. They might find that the dollars and cents were a bit higher than they had thought. But I do think that, and it was mentioned by some of your, your management companies earlier, the fear factor of the airport, just the impact of the new way of traveling. Airlines, some of them will not survive. Some routes will definitely disappear. I saw Garuda announced 97 routes dropped. Delta have dropped, I think is 11, 11, 11 cities in, in the US. So access is going to become an issue. And people with high net worth don't want to queue up for their coffee, for their immigration, for their um, security, their boarding. All that is a touch point. I think the airports are our biggest then are one of the biggest reasons we've got a growth in the business. Do you, do you see prices continuing to go up in 22? No, they can't. It's, it's it, 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 well, the banks won't let it. No, one, no one's mentioned insurance. Insurance companies won't, won't let it either. Um, or, or put it this way, come down and learn 50% as opposed to 70 or 80%, depending on the transaction or the airplane. Um, I don't see it. It can't carry on like this. I mean, it's a it's a machine. It gets older. It needs maintenance. It needs various checks as it gets older. So no, it, it will depreciate. Um, how long will this continue? Very hard to say. Um, a year ago, if you told me we'd be in this position, I probably would have fallen off my chair laughing. Yeah, Michelle, what are your thoughts on values? Um, as Frank said, it's, it's a very tricky question. My, my personal view is that we recently did a very quick analysis of aircraft prices and we looked at aircraft, always the same model, same age, like a, I don't know, five year old G550 or so over time, year over year, how this, the prices developed. And there we saw that from 2015, 16 on, it kept going down. So the same type, same age of an aircraft was always less and less. And now it kind of recovers a little bit. So I think it could very well be that prices, in fact, 
are high now and also will stay higher. I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that they will stay at the current price level because I think um, there are really many people who said, oh, now I need to buy, you know, prices go up and up. So, uh, and they kind of ready to pay prices where we actually feel they're really too high. Um, so they, they might go down a little bit, but I personally think it could be that we, we then have a, a balanced market again at the level which is higher than it was uh, pre-COVID. So, but again, <laughs> yeah, who knows? And it's, of course, uh, these are the difficult discussions. And we as a bank, also our view is, is of course, we, we have to be conservative. We have to be on the careful side. So we tend to look at values, uh, real values for our purpose that are uh, less than what is currently paid. Alex, did you want to talk about values? I know Global Jet Capital spends a lot of time tracking this as well. Yes, yeah, so obviously, uh, one of our niche product was uh, operating lease, whereby um, um, uh, the customer enjoy using the aircraft for a period of time, and then they just return the aircraft uh, to us simply after uh, after lease. And uh, you're right, the valuation has always been our uh, bread, bread and butter in the in the in the, in the, in the business, and then we uh, we try to um, mitigate the. I would say the residual value risk from uh, from the owners to us. So, uh, in terms of valuation, uh, we, we don't think we don't think that um, we don't think that this uh, current current uh, stance was was safe for too long. Mainly because uh, uh, you know after a, a year or two, the the, the OEM will new new aircraft will roll out, and then after the production will pick up, and when the nor uh, when the world starts to uh, come back to normal, and then uh, people will start to realize um, actually the the price of that, uh, the reason why the price uh, was driven up is because um, uh, what we say the fuel is missing out. So in terms of uh, this, I don't think uh, this trend will continue for too long. And Alex, are you happy to write operating leases at the moment? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And then uh, uh, to elaborate, elaborate a little bit more on this, you know, I think as uh, as new as more new buyers are actually looking into getting uh, getting into an aircraft, I think more uh, new concept buyers will be looking into operating uh, because um, they wanted more privacy and they wanted wanted more flexibility, uh, you know, to uh, to utilize these jets instead of owning them and then having to dispose them in. Uh, in uh, five or seven years, given the uh, uncertainty that uh, that uh, they might face in the in the future on pricing as well, so I think there is a rising interest in uh, operating lease, especially in uh, in our region, Asia Pacific. Is anyone else seeing that, uh, Frank or, or Michelle? Are you seeing that on the operating lease side? I mean, on the operating lease side, we are we are not involved in it. No, we, uh, no. I think, over the last decade, it was quite a wise decision not to be no, taking residual value risks. Whereas no, now, if the market is really turning um, into a, a bull market, or uh, at least prices being more sustainable. This might be something less risky, but uh, I think uh, historically it was good not to uh, not to be active from our side. Misha, 
Yes, the same thing. We, we don't uh, do operating leases because we would not feel comfortable with residual risks. And uh, as Frank said, you know, looking back in the past, you know, the, the market moved so much. Uh, unfortunately, it was always downwards, but still the prices were at levels that we might have not uh, expected, uh, I don't know, five years uh, before that. So, yeah, I, I, I think we have a good view of the market of current prices, at least for, for us. We, we know where we are, but making prediction predictions for uh, residual values and taking that risk, uh, we would not feel comfortable. And this is why we, we cannot offer this product. Okay, going back to the title of the session, Getting Transactions Done. Stuart, you do all the hard work. While the rest just... You know, David's out in the bar and, you know, the bankers and financiers are out for dinner. Um, how hard is it at the moment? Uh, look, I um, uh, appreciate the sentiment there, Al, very much. Uh, but we, we all know that everybody is working extremely hard at the moment, um, uh, including David and the bankers. Um, getting, getting deals closed, uh, look, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, we've certainly had our share of difficult transactions for all the uh, the practical difficulties that have been well talked about um, recently. You know, things like PPI slots and um, a recent one was uh, being able to get a DAR uh, assessment done, uh, you know, things like that. But, but having said that, our overriding experience um, is that it hasn't been as difficult as... Um, as some people uh, have experienced. Uh, in general, we're finding that buyers and sellers are typically sensible, um, they're surprisingly flexible. I know there's some uh, horrendous stories of uh, buyers and oh, particularly sellers that are, are not flexible. Uh, but our experience is that there's sensible people, flexible people and cooperative people. Uh, and everyone's been trying to get the deals done uh, as best they can rather than uh, trying to stuff each other. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that I think has been testament to the professionalism that's been brought to transactions by all the advisors, um, in, including the brokers, of course, and the financiers. I mean, do you think that the failure rate, I know it's hard to track the failure rate of deals, but you, know, you haven't seen a massive number of deals falling through because, you know, you can't get a pilot into China to fly the aircraft out or... You can't get BPI. No, no, we haven't seen a massive fail rate uh, at all. I have heard of a couple of uh, very difficult situations uh, where transactions have failed at the very last minute, um, uh, allegedly because sellers have been able to wriggle out uh, for a better buyer. Uh, but in our experience, um, like I say, people have been pretty sensible and cooperative uh, and have have, have stuck with the deals that they've written LOIs on. Um, yeah. Can you, can you imagine what would have happened if COVID had hit 15, 20 years ago when, you know, all you had was your BlackBerry? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, some of us in the office were talking about um, days gone past where we were writing deals on, on Blackberries um, and the difficulty with that. And I, I shuddered to think uh, what the last, well, what this year would have been like uh, without remote um, remote control. David, have you got any war stories? 
Well, I know you've got lots of horse stories. Have you got any stories from the I think on the Blackberry point, I think there's too much information and too much speculation about an, an airplane's value, what its condition. Someone sent me a WhatsApp yesterday when well, WhatsApp didn't exist then, on Blackberries anyway, um, saying, oh, this airplane was bought for so much. And when you check, it doesn't have an engine program and it doesn't have this. And so there's a lot of disinformation floating around, which is a byproduct of instant so-called news. Um, so one's having to sort of dust that away and get through to the real, the real facts of the deal. So maybe, maybe the iPhone isn't such a great thing after all. Um, I'd almost welcome the BlackBerry back in some respects. But the transactional issues, of this time of the year, the US, all the facilities are clogged up anyway. This is just a bit more clogged up, but there are some new ones. Um, the, the OEMs have put up facilities in Europe. Uh, there's some European options, which didn't exist 18 months ago, two years ago. So that's helped. So the industry is growing. Um, there's Asian facilities as well. Um, there are one or two fly-by-night deals done where people are taking airplanes without PPIs, which I think is very brave. It doesn't matter where the airplane's been. Um, it's a bold step, and I would perhaps wonder whether banks would accept that. I don't think so. But um, interesting times for sure. There's some new boundaries being breached, that's for sure. You do, there's no need, though, to send an aircraft over to the state. If you've got an aircraft in the region, you don't really, you've got great maintenance facilities in the region, haven't you? You don't need to send it over to the states for PPID. Well, the problem at the moment is people can't get here to look at the aeroplanes. I mean, that's something that we've been very keen on to get a. You can't come to Hong Kong and have a look at an aeroplane. People like people like to touch and feel and see these things. They're not Dep- going to... Depends which bank you work for. <laughs> but they need to go and see the aeroplane. And the only way is to take it there. So you, you put it in the showroom, you put the blitz and glamour all around it, and you'll sell it. If you leave it in some remote airport, it will, even Hong Kong, you can't get to see it. Macau, you can't get to see it. China, you can't. So take it to the States. And then, of course, you're not going to bring it all the way back for a check. There are exceptions for airplanes out of China because of China registration or complications. Someone mentioned DARs, things like that. There are variations. There are checks being or PPIs being done in Singapore. Um, but Hong Kong is locked out at the moment. So you can't really do it here but at this point. Um, it may change soon. Alex, Stuart raised the, uh, sorry, David raised the point of PPIs. Would you finance an aircraft which hasn't had a pre-purchase inspection? Oh, sorry, you just on mute, Alex, sorry. Sorry, guys. So, um, uh, <laughs> PPI, uh, you know, as a financier, uh, I, I, would, I would think uh, Frank and Michelle uh, agrees uh, that we probably definitely would not uh, accept to finance aircraft without a PPI. It has to be, uh, uh, you know, because a lot of things uh, could happen to these aircraft when they're not being properly taken care of. A lot of corrosion can happen. A lot of uh, maintenance issue can happen. You know, one of the instances that we uh, ran into a couple months ago was actually we were trying to finance the aircraft, but then um, at the PPI stage, whereby uh, uh, it was done by a very reputable um, uh, third-party inspector. And then we found out there was a, a massive corrosion that cost about almost half a million to repair. So, uh, you know, so I think PPI is definitely necessary, something uh, that has to be done in order to protect uh, everyone's interest. Michelle, I know how you credit these likes to rock. I'm sure you're very happy to just finance it. You're not worried about inspecting. 
we are very much worried if there is no inspection, of course. No, we would not, and uh, or at least some some form of inspection afterwards. So we need to know exactly what is the condition of an aircraft. It may look great in the purchase agreement and the description, but we, we need to have somebody on the ground looking at this aircraft and giving us confirmation that it's actually in a good condition. Otherwise, we, we cannot because, you know, especially in, this, in these times, uh, for example, in Asia, many aircraft have been on the ground now for, for months or a year. And uh, if they're not in proper storage mode, their corrosion can happen anytime and with, with incredible costs. So we would never finance without uh, having the confirmation that all is good and it's in perfect condition. And Frank, it goes without saying, it's the same for you as well, isn't it? You, you will be surprised. We also want to have a PPI getting being done. Uh, I believe if it's a, a young aircraft, it much should be acceptable to uh, to have a shortened PPI just because uh, of the uh, of the young age of the aircraft. It might not have been exposed too much. However, as as Michelle and and Alex said, corrosion could creep in any time, and we just have to make sure that there's not no major defect, and we really want to avoid such a situation. Frank, talking about corrosion, one of the things that you know, leads to corrosion is aircraft not flying and being parked for long periods. Is that something you're concerned about, that, you know, some of your customers or some of your aircraft haven't been able to fly for regulatory reasons? No. The maintenance of, of aircraft and, uh, and having uh, storage procedures while the aircraft is on the ground is, is, real, is very important for us. I and mean, we, have, we have an own asset management team who, uh, who looks at the portfolio management of our of our entire fleet. And here it's decisive to be in a close and frequent contact with the operator. And now we, uh, we are maintaining this dialogue and we are very appreciative of the, of the feedback and, and, and cooperation of the operators who, uh, with whom we are working because we really see that they do whatever is necessary to uh, to the storage, the ground ground maintenance of aircraft that are not flying, to make sure engine covers are on, or ideally the aircraft get even hangar if, uh, if possible. And, um, I think this is of tremendous importance uh, to us. David, do you want to comment on parked aircraft? Well, Alistair, as you know, this is a hobby of hobby horse of mine. I've been when I was with ASBAA. I was very strong on this point. Corrosion predates COVID. It's not unique. It's just it's highlighted in some cases. And we've got airplanes very recently that have been supposedly well looked after, living in this environment. And there's been a million, a million and a half dollars to be spent on the bright work, the leading edges, typically, um, just because of the environment. And this is an airplane that gets the TLC that it needs. So corrosion starts the day the thing leaves the factory. And I've always shuddered and always could not understand why owners shun this. They, if, the, if the management company put a cost to cleaning, sometimes it gets deleted. No, we're not paying for cleaning. Um, don't, as far as I'm concerned, you cannot clean it enough. You know, you, you brush your teeth every morning and nighttime. You clean the airplane every morning and nighttime. And there are environments here which are totally destroying airplanes. And the longer they sit on the ground, uncared for, 
And listen, you, you remember the one NDB fiasco in Malaysia. Uh, one war story here for you. The government thought it was a $35 million asset sitting there. And they kept talking about this and trying to recover money from um, the, the, the 1MDB fiasco. I made it known to the people handling this that this airplane had sat there for three years. They hadn't even moved it. it just, what had been happened is it had been uh, repossessed, but no maintenance contract was issued on the airplane. It was seized and secured, but it wasn't maintained. Two and a half, three years later, it was worth $5 million. It was parts, effectively. It was put back in the air. But there's an example. If you just leave something in a field, it'll die. Now it's probably worth $10 million. Oh, possibly, because it's had the work done. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, just to, you know, because of the market. Um, we've been talking, you know, the theme at the moment is it's a, a seller's market, which is something that, you know, no one dreamt about. You know, five years ago, particularly as you know, many of you have been involved in selling aircraft. Michelle, is, is it a disadvantage to have financing? If I'm competing, you know, to buy an aircraft, and I'm up, and I've, I've got a financing from, you know, a, a great bank, but the person opposite me is a cash buyer. Well, I would not not say that is necessarily the case. Uh, it's clear, of course, when you have a financing, you know, there, there are a few extra steps in the purchase agreement. But I think we have become uh, so efficient and professional that the, the extra time or the extra effort that is required is really at the level where a, a normal seller would not have an issue. I mean, there's no real delay because of, of a financing. So I don't really think that this is the case. Of course, I mean, clients, we have clients who want to be on the very extra careful side. So they say, I pay cash. And then we, we do the, the financing uh, you know, a few days after he, he purchased. That we have seen. Uh, but I don't think that this is necessarily a problem. And the, the fact that we do then the refinancing shortly after the, the purchase proves that uh, yeah, we would have been ready probably anyway. Stuart? Yeah, I, I think there's multiple levels to your question on that one, actually, Alistair. It's a it's a good question. Um, I think I think a cash buyer appears to have more flexibility, right? Um, and I think that's where you might be going with that. Um, but in reality, the flexibility is probably around things um, that a cash buyer or a prudent cash buyer wouldn't really want to be flexible on. And we spoke a minute ago about the example of a, a PPI. Um, so uh, can a cash buyer buy without a PPI? Yes. Can a finance buyer buy without a PPI? Probably not. Um, but the reality of it is that um, prudent cash buyers uh, would want to do the PPI anyway. Uh, I think Michelle's point about um, uh, the the world of corporate jet finance being professional and pretty streamlined these days is a very good one, uh, and I would agree with that. And uh, in my experience, having a financier involved in a transaction does not tend to slow it down. Um, so I, I would agree with that. I've got, I've got a friend who's a commercial property lawyer, and he was telling me that what he loves is that every deal he ever starts on is always a cash buyer. And then suddenly halfway through it, a, a financier arrives. So you can never just, and he's, he's never done one without financing. Um, Alex, is it a disadvantage? 
Yeah, uh, not necessarily. I think, well, obviously, as Stuart mentioned, uh, cash buyer uh, do have the flexibility to move forward anytime because they uh, they can just send an LOI when they see a, a desired aircraft whenever they identify one. But a lot of times, the customer was worried about not having the financing support, you know, for the for the guys who doesn't have enough liquidity. So, um, uh, and they want to shop for the aircraft. So, um, due to high de- due to high demand, you know, maybe that aircraft could be uh, gone in seconds. So, um. So that's uh, unfortunately that's the reality where we're seeing at the moment. However, uh, in order to I, I would say in order to better better support this market, one of the uh, I guess the support that we, we can provide uh, uh, these buyers who who doesn't have enough liquidity will be uh, uh, what we what we call the pre-approval, which is uh, something what, that we offer without uh, identifying the aircraft at the at this stage to so to support these buyers who uh, who needs liquidity in the market. We do support uh, pre-approval, which allows them to uh, uh, be pre-approved by uh, up to XYZ amount of a million dollars, where uh, which provide them some confidence and um, certainty when they go shopping there for aircraft in the market. So, in terms of disadvantage, I don't think uh, that would be a too much. There would be a too much of a disadvantage, and then we do see that a lot of uh, prospects, I would say, uh, sign up for uh, for uh, for pre-approval. So, um, so uh, this this definitely uh, gives them more edge to compete with uh, cash buyers in this uh, ever changing market. Uh, Michelle, will you do pre approval? It's not often the case. I think we had one or two cases where we kind of looked at the transaction and gave. The, the client, at least the, the positive feedback, they said, okay, we could do it. And they they were looking for them an aircraft and we had also clients who lost, uh, they made an offers but didn't move ahead. Uh, we had cases, but this is a rare case. And in any case, when then the real aircraft is here, we have to evaluate the aircraft again, fix the loan amount and, and go through a quick approval process anyway. So, but, um, as I said, it's not uh, a case where we have a lot of demand from clients. Typically, they come when you have something and we're reasonably fast. So, uh, especially with, with the PPI and everything, we can for sure be ready when the transaction will close. So, it's not been a real issue here. Frank? If, if time is of essence to close a deal, a cash buyer definitely has an advantage, no doubt about that. However, um, um, it's about to get timing right. And if somebody really wants to buy an aircraft, they uh, they are also approaching us in, uh, at an earlier stage uh, just to have a bit of timing advantage. And I believe it's all about getting being prepared in the current environment. Now, you need to have a proper structure in place and that's something that is of concern to us. There are many first-time buyers who want to buy an aircraft and they don't, they don't give it sufficient thought of um, having an appropriate structure. Uh, they need to involve an, a broker who advises them of sourcing an aircraft. They have to, uh, to get the structure right in terms of aircraft ownership, aircraft registration, operation of the aircraft, and in, um, we are confronted rather, with increasingly with situations where clients 
say, hey, do you want to buy an aircraft? They got it here. They, they are signing an LOI, but they don't have a structure in place. And this um, uh, has a severe potential, severe impact on timing. Uh, and those clients who have given it a lot of thought in advance, who are prepared, I think that's in their benefit. And then there's also no, no disadvantage on the timing side to get financing in place. Okay, we've got a couple of questions from the audience. David, actually, no, Stuart, I'm going to go to David, I'll go to you first, then I'll go to Stuart. Is it too late to close a deal with all the Is it too late to close a deal properly this year? I would say next Monday, and it starts to become nearly impossible. There's about 29 working days left in the US. You've got Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year. Um, Aside from COVID and impacts on moving DARs or people on airplanes, one or two brand new airplanes that are being traded could be squeezed out the door. But I would say something a 10-year-old airplane that's been living in Beijing. I was expecting you to say, I can close whatever. Stuart, would you agree with that? (laughs) I can close whatever, Al. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Seriously, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, it's it's starting to get tight, uh, but it's still possible. Okay. Um, and I'm not even going to put the bankers on the spot because there's probably someone watching here who's going to go. <laughs> I did say next Monday, Alistair. I did say next Monday. You did say next Monday. I know you've got three days, um, which is also a good closing. I did notice that. <laughs> that was a great closing technique. Um, we've got a question from Joseph Robertson. David, I'm going to put this to everyone, actually. Which country in Asia-Pacific do you see rebounding the most post-pandemic? You go first, sir. Uh, I think the Southeast Asian countries, Vietnam, uh, Australia, so partly because of the domestic element in Australia. As, you, as I said earlier, you, it's a big country. You need to move around. Um, it's a long way from the States. It's a long way from anywhere. So, um, yeah, Australia and Southeast Asia. Alex? Oh, sorry, Alex. Oh, um, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> so uh, I would say the same. Uh, I was we would see uh, you know uh, North. Uh, well, if we look at if we uh, move uh, about a year ago, you know we see a lot of uh, rebound in uh, uh, North Asian market, predominantly uh, in Greater China. However, uh, in this part uh, this year, predominantly in uh, 2021, we see that a lot of the demands rebounding are in uh, Southeast Asia, especially with the, the countries whereby they need, uh, they have massive ocean and land, and they need a means to travel. And then the ultra high network individual uh, would prefer to travel in their own aircraft. And then um, especially in Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, and, and up, up and coming Vietnam, it's, uh, it's one of our, um, I would say, uh, we, we play a lot of focus in Vietnam right now. And then uh, Australia it has always been important to us because Due to the uh, landmass, a lot of people who uh, who are based in Australia needed needed aircraft to travel as well. So uh, we say, uh, I would say, um, uh, 2021 is a rebound year for Southeast Asia. Australia, for us, pretty much the same countries. I would say, for the most concrete business we see is Australia, definitely. Um, But we also see activities now in, in Vietnam. Taiwan, there are requests coming. 
and also Singapore. There has been some activity again, so um, we are hopeful that there, uh, one or two deal might come out of, of Singapore. But otherwise, pretty much as, as the colleague said. Stuart? Yeah, same again. Uh, I think the restrictions in North Asia um, are likely to stick around for some time to come. So I think the rebound uh, is more likely in Southeast Asia and, and down in uh, Australia and New Zealand, as has been discussed. And frankly, do you want to change that? No, I, I completely echo what uh, what the other panelists have said on uh, on the region, especially Southeast Asia and Australia. I think regarding greater China region, one of the decisive uh, questions will be the uh, there's, a, there's a large event upcoming, the uh, Winter Olympic Games in uh, in February next year. Let's see uh, how the, the flight pattern will, will move around that and if that might open uh, some, uh, some door for, for reopening the skies on, on the greater China region. But um, I think there's a big question mark around it. That was uh, actually, I think Jenny Lau uh, in the opening panel was optimistic about uh, the Winter Olympics making a difference. Talking about the opening panel, David, you asked a question about the elephant in the room being the sort of Chinese attitude towards wealth at the moment. What's your thought? Uh, common prosperity um, is the curveball, it's the elephant in the room. No one knows quite where that's taking us. Um, how heavily be applied. Tall poppies have had their heads chopped off in the last uh, few months. And there are some more in the property market and others. Um, and it might just not be the right thing to own an aeroplane in some quarters. That's the unknown. That's what we don't know how heavily that's going to be applied. Um, and, and I would say with, with some 30 plus years of dealing in China, this could be a big problem. And I'm going to be really nice and not ask anyone else to put their, <laughs> that question because they're the sensitivities of their organisations. But I'm going to ask with the final question. 95% of people who have voted, I'm just checking again now, um, are really optimistic about Asia in 2022. Um, uh, I'm going to very quickly go around. Uh, if you can just say you're very optimistic, fairly optimistic, pessimistic, and 20 seconds on why. Alex, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm, ve uh, I'm very opti optimistic about Asia in, uh, you know, uh, in the next two years, five years, you know, uh, basically. Uh, we're seeing a lot of wealth shifting into, uh, into this region. A lot of uh, uh, wealth are uh, uh, redistributing, and then uh, mainly because uh, a lot of factories are moving down to Southeast Asia. So uh, that will, um, a lot of factories means that they will create um, uh, a lot of new um, new blenders, I would, I would put it that way. And then thus the economy will be moving and then there will be more aircraft coming in. So uh, we're very positive about this region in the next five years. Stuart? Uh, very optimistic. I think the, the new entrants generally are here to stay. I don't think we're going to lose too many of them when commercial carriers rejuvenate. Um, I think corporates are going to fly more uh, and, and it's quite likely that the level of personnel within corporates that use, use jets is probably going to push down rather than tighten up. Uh, I think restrictions will continue to loosen up. 
Um, and there will also be a development of market products in Asia. Uh, we, we saw the announcement earlier today about Amber Aviation and um, NetJets and, and the products that they're suggesting there. Uh, I think there'll be more of that to come. So I'm, I'm very positive. Michelle? So also I'm, I'm positive, fairly positive, but I don't think that we will see an increase of business which will come in the very short term. I think it may gradually improve and you ask for reasons. One reason is that we see new wealth being generated. We see uh, younger clients who are in the fintech business, etc., who created a lot of wealth now in the past years. And, and so these guys will sooner or later want to, to have an aircraft because of the obvious advantages. Also, while we still have COVID around, so there is clear advantages uh, once you can fly. And so I think there will be an increased demand um, step by step. And Michelle, you're, you're pessimistic just because you see the, the focus being on the US for the on you know, lack of supply. Yes, yes, of course, yeah, yeah, and, and oh, sorry. no, 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 just okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic as well. I, I also only expect a gradual improvement of the situation. However, there, there is a lot of wealth in the region, and the people want to fly. They want to travel, and they want to avoid the restrictions of, uh, of, um, of airports. Of, of current uh, quarantine well security issues quarantines you can't you can't avoid but no we are fairly optimistic that this will gradually improve again but we don't we don't see a big bang happening uh, over the next few months um, i think it will be a, a slow a slow process and david final word to you worldwide i'm quite optimistic um i think the arrival of all the new airplanes, which is good for Asia. The downside, which we've forgotten about not being mentioned, and this is pre-COVID infrastructure, there aren't lots of airports for the net jet type of operation. It's going to be very constrained. If the airlines come back with a vengeance in Asia, uh, we have to hope they do. Um, we don't have the airports to absorb the similar type of operation that's in North America. It's a way off for the number of airports and the infrastructure and the mindset of the regulatory authorities. So you're fairly optimistic for, for, for Asia? Uh, well, I wouldn't be here um, if I wasn't, but I'm, I'm Too late very, to very optimistic worldwide. I'm just a little disappointed at some of the constraints and factors we've got. But that's what the challenge is about this region. That's what so is while, exciting. While we've been talking, or you've been talking, um, we've gone from 5% very pessimistic to 4.8, which is still about 20 <laughs> people. And I'm just hoping they're not all in the same office. Um, thank you so much to Alex, Michelle, Stuart, Frank, and David. Um, it's been great seeing you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having